Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. Just a mindset shift in this as well is we got to look at this from an adversarial mindset. How are the attackers breaking in? What are they doing when they break in? What's their end game? What's their goal? Welcome everybody to the, to the April webinar. And we're going to look at priorities for chief information security officers. We're going to give everybody a little bit of time to join. And we see the numbers are going up. If you've attended any of these before, you know that what we do for the next three minutes is we just talk amongst ourselves and at 103, we'll come back and we'll get started to the meat of the webinar. So I have two, two guests. We're still waiting for one more to join, but uh, Shauna Hofer is here with St. Luke's uh, chief information security officer for St. Luke's out of Boise, Idaho and Vic Aurora, who is the chief information security officer out of hospital for special surgery. You guys serve very different populations, Boise, Idaho, and New York City, but hospital for special surgery, you guys really have a global population as well. So that's fantastic. And Eric Decker has joined, he is in the building, but has no instructions, has no idea what we're gonna be doing because he just rolled in right on time. I hate to do that to you, Eric, but it's great I to have, it's great, great to have you here. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do a little, what I'd like to do is, get people to know you guys a little bit better before we start. And we'll start in about two or three minutes after people join. Shauna, we'll start with you. What was your first job out of school? First job out of school, I worked for Deloitte as an enterprise risk services consultant. Wow. So you were always on this path to being a security officer. I didn't know that I would end up in cybersecurity. I knew I didn't want to do accounting, which was my undergrad. And it just kind of fell in my lap and I'm so grateful, but it was really, I think that experience at Deloitte that helped give me that risk kind of lens that maybe those who grew up in the technology side didn't necessarily get as much. So it's been beneficial for me. Yeah. I like those firms like Deloitte. It's paid job hopping. Yeah. You go from project to project until you figure out what you really want to do and then you're off. And it's uh, really the expectation they want. I mean, you need yeah. to Oh, no, absolutely. Vic, what was your first job out of school? My first job was working for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. I was responsible for communicating impact of IT incidents globally, whether they were cyber or otherwise. Wow. You guys must have been really good students. My first job was like, you know, checking people into a hospital. Literally, I was the person checking people into a hospital. You guys obviously took your education more seriously than I did. Eric, what was your first job out of school? Uh, I'm nowhere near Shauna and Vic. <laughs> I was a desktop support analyst for a small R&D shop in California that was attempting to do healthcare exchanges using peer-to-peer -peer protocols. Like this is like Napster for medical records, which clearly didn't work. <laughs> and I was like the support guy in a little small 50, 50 shop development office. Something people did not expect to hear on the chief information security officer priorities was the phrase Napster for medical records. 
<laughs> My gosh, I can only imagine the, what that would have been like. All right, hey, we'll get into it. First of all, I wanna thank everybody who's joined us. All of us really commented, this is the best group of questions I think I've ever seen submitted for a webinar. So I'm looking forward, to, I'm gonna do our back and forth as little as possible and get to your questions because they're just exceptional. This particular one is part of our leadership series. And this is about the priorities that the chief information security officers are facing. Encourage you to ask your questions. Now we received like 40 some odd questions ahead of time, but if you have some questions as we go through, go ahead and put those in the chat. And I've encouraged these three to keep an eye on the chat and potentially answer them directly. If not, we'll try to incorporate them as we move along. All right, quick introductions. Eric Decker is the chief information security officer at Intermountain, Intermountain Health, Vic Aurora, Hospital for Special Surgery, Chief Information Security Officer, and Shauna Hofer, St. Luke's out of Boise, Idaho. Here's where I'd like to start. We've been doing this priority series. We This is our third in the priority series. And every time I do it, I come back to a poll I did in early January. And the poll was, what will drive healthcare provider priorities in 2023? And we had financial pressure, disruption, new entrants, patient experience, and worker shortage. I'm going to change this around for you guys. And I guess my question is, if I were to write this poll for cybersecurity right now, what would be some of those drivers I would list that are potentially driving the priorities right now? And we'll start with you. Yeah, great. I think as I thought about how to answer this question, what ultimately ended up being my number one is my drivers have to be aligned with the health system drivers. So if the health system is focusing in reaction to some of their workforce challenges, for example, they're moving more towards automation or artificial intelligence type of capabilities, I have to be ahead of and enable those. So really being able to support them as my number one. And then I transition into what are some of the evolving cybersecurity threats that continue to, to plague the healthcare industry. I added the third-party risk challenge that continues to increase as we gain more reliance in healthcare on third parties and just the increased attack surface there the evolution of phishing maturity and our challenge in educating our users to combat that with the compensating technical controls and ransomware. It's decreasing, I think, in terms of numbers, but the impact is still very high. And so making sure that we're prepared to prevent and respond. That's what I would add. Fantastic. Vic, how about you? I mean, what things would you say are setting the priorities for cybersecurity right now? I think for us, the first and foremost is communicating risk within the organization to the board, to external constituents, our partners, including the insurance brokers, having a normalized language so that we're all on the same page is extremely important because we get pulled in so many directions depending on what the context is of cyber. The second is applying cybersecurity controls in consistently in an increasingly decentralized IT environment with cloud, consumerization, wearables. Access to IT has become very easy and it's the IT departments are not the service providers anymore. They're more brokers if they're lucky. Otherwise, the business is out there getting whatever services they need from SaaS and what have you. So Applying security in a consistent manner in that decentralized is something that is a priority. 
And the last is, I would, I think, Steve, from what you were saying earlier, the worker shortage of worker experience is true for cyber as well. Finding and retaining talent and the stress faced by the security teams and the burnout is another priority. Fantastic. Eric, how about you? Well, I won't add, I won't repeat what Sean and Vic just said, because those are on the list. I think the only one I'll add to the to this, and one that I think is incredibly important, is concept of resiliency and patient safety. It goes hand in hand with what Shauna was talking about. But I, as a profession, we really need to start thinking about this outside of the lens of just our own organizations and thinking about the ecosystem that we are participating in and how when you look at the capacity that a hospital or hospital system has to bring in patients and care for patients, especially in an acute setting, emergency setting, trauma setting, we don't build in capacity in the case that something sort of over, we go over a hump. We, as a hospital system, we tend, we have diversion techniques. We have all these things where we, we push the patients off to another system that hopefully will be able to handle it, knowing that it's not usually the entirety of the list of patients if a system goes down and it's not for a sustained outage. It's not for 30 to 60 days of how the capacity has been built. It's for hours or 24 hours or a day or two. So as a system, as a health system, when one system goes down in the ecosystem, it impacts everybody. And this happened with scripts. It was seen that way. It happened with common spirit. And so knowing that, that becomes immediately a patient care and public health and public safety problem. And so for us to solve for this, we have to be thinking about cyber as resiliency. We have to be thinking, we have to move on from, well, of course, we have to continue to maintain the privacy and confidentiality of our data, but we've got to move on from being a data security type of program and truly being a resiliency type of program and thinking about it in that lens. All the third-party stuff that they talked about comes into play. The workforce stuff comes into play. The, the Certainly, I'll tell you from the federal lens and the federal government side, the regional and public health component of how well the hospitals are actually able to sustain these and weather these types of attacks is acute. They're acutely aware of it, and, and they want this problem to be solved because they don't want these crises to happen in our country. So we've got to get better at that. And I think that for sure, one of my extreme top priorities just here at Intermountain. It's interesting. Resiliency is an interesting, I'm going to ask a different question, but resiliency is really interesting to me just because we used to ask the question of what's that, what happens if that system's offline for an hour or two? And now we've got to say, what happens if that system's offline for a week or two weeks? Like what? What's or two months, That's right? What we see, one to two months. Yeah. Yeah. And the you talk about the interconnectedness of things. And I'll just go to the basic one, which is if your active directory is down for two weeks, nothing's happening. Like, I mean, that's like the lifeblood of everything that's going on because so many systems, and I didn't even realize this until we had an issue, but like our, our system to get into our data center was tied to our active directory. You couldn't get into the data. It was like silly things like that. You're like, what were we thinking when we set this up? Well, we were thinking it was never going to go down. And now we have to really go back and rethink through all that architecture again. Yeah. And just a mindset shift in this as well is we got to look at this from an adversarial mindset. 
How are the attackers breaking in? What are they doing when they break in? What's their end game? What's their goal? Of course, their end game and goal is extortion and trying to get financial gain and fraud. But the means by which they do it, Bill, it's exactly what you said. At the end of the day, they're hitting Active Directory as hard as they possibly can because that's the biggest place that they can do the most damage. So when we look at our whole program and we're like blocking and tackling everything that could possibly happen, if you apply the adversarial lens to this, you're going to get a lot better bang for the buck from doing security around that. So Active Directory for sure should be in your list of a tool set about how are you hardening it? Are you applying an isolation design structure? Used to be called Red Forest. Now they Microsoft got rid of that term. They don't have a good term for it anymore, but it's a brilliant strategy for how to secure AD just from an architectural perspective. And then of course, there's all kinds of tools and processes and monitoring, of course, that goes with it. Vic, let's go to you. Are there any regulatory changes that that you're keeping your eye on at this point? Not that we're driven by regulatory, but we're sort of required to follow it. Yeah, nothing in healthcare, by the way. Am I better audible now? Yeah, no, that's, okay. yeah, that's better. So nothing in healthcare specifically. I always say like technology is the first one to move followed by security that's trying to catch up with tech. And then after that comes the regulation that's trying to catch up with security. And the regulation that we're watching is mostly the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. They're coming up with regulations that would require board members to have cyber knowledge and put more responsibility in cyber oversight. I think it's going to trickle into other sectors, even though they're not obligated, but that would set as a gold standard. HIPAA hasn't changed since 1996. I'm hoping there is a change. There's a lot of non-binding guidance that FDA issues. They recently issued a 500, Part 500 regulation 524B for medical devices to be more secure. But again, they're always saying it's you're not legally required. It's just a best practice and guidance. So mostly looking at the Securities and Exchange Commission and the New York Department of Financial Services, they're revising their cybersecurity rule, but they don't directly apply to healthcare as such. So yeah. looking at those to get guidance. So there's a lot of talk in this space. I mean, Senator Warner and all that stuff that's, yeah. I mean, there's the, the FDA you talked about, there's always a lot of talk going but there's no specific healthcare requirements that are sort of falling out right now. I'm sort of throwing that out to the field. I don't, a, a, any thoughts on that? It's coming. So it's coming. it is absolutely. The, there is a lot of interest, not even just within HS, but also outside of HHS, the National Security Council, driven by the major executive sponsor pushing on this is Ann Neuberger. CISA has been involved in this. The, Federal government knows, as you saw with Warner's paper, the national the national cybersecurity strategy didn't call out healthcare specifically, but it did call out the need for minimum standards, vendor liabilities to be better. The this is being discussed and explored right now, as far as how what kinds of what kind of model should it be? The things that we're pushing for from a, from an advisory perspective are reimbursements call them CMS facility fee reimbursement, something along those lines that are tied to minimum requirements, baseline requirements, whatever we want to call these things. And in by and large, when we've been, this is, I'm speaking on behalf of the, as the chair of the several working group, when we've been talking with our constituents on this, it has been, it's, it hasn't been rejected as a, you know, we know we shouldn't do this. The caveat has been, we should do this, but we have no resources to do an unfunded mandate. 
And so we really need to partner on, on that process. Yeah. That, no, that makes perfect sense. My last question, and I'm going to go to the participant questions. Sean, I'm going to come to you. How important are security frameworks in establishing a foundation for the discussion internally and with your board and other things in order to really drive a consistent approach to cybersecurity? I think they're very important in kind of all of those aspects. I especially kind of driving that board conversation. Cybersecurity is such a challenging topic. And so to be able to communicate it in a way that our board can understand without having to get into the specifics is incredibly helpful because you can assess maturity and therefore risk through that lens. I think when you think about the multitude of frameworks that are available, it can feel complicated for cybersecurity teams to align on any particular one or multiple. So I think in some regards, they're beneficial and also can be challenging. But I think they they drive they drive really great things. And without it, you know, I think a cybersecurity group team organization can get a little lost or a little unorganized without them. And I know Eric's done a nice job kind of helping provide some of those frameworks to, to smaller, medium-sized organizations as well, and in specific in healthcare, which is really helpful for healthcare organizations. Eric, maybe you could add a little bit to, to that on Hiccup. Yeah, you're you're breaking up at the end there. Yeah, happy. I think you you met, you referenced Hiccup, so I'm happy to <laughs> jump in on that. Yeah, what one of the frameworks that we produced as part of this joint curriculum infrastructure partnership with HHS is the Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices, or Hiccup HICP. That is a a hygiene document, ten practices to mitigate five threats, stratified by small, medium, and large organizations. It was released in 2000. The end of 2018, right at the beginning of 2019, we have a new version, Hiccup 2023, coming out eminently. I mean, hopefully next week <laughs> or soon thereafter. And also from an incentive perspective, that publication has been amended into high tech of HIPAA and high tech and noted as a recognized cybersecurity practice. And OCR is required to evaluate your adoption of Hiccup when considering any kind of enforcement action against you. And so if you can demonstrate you've, you've implemented a good recognized cybersecurity practice regime for the last 12 months, you're going to be in a good position with OCR if something occurs. All right, let me, so I'm going to start going through the questions that were submitted. I will either say, I'll either throw it out to the field and if you have a opinion on it, you can answer it, or I'll say this is an all play. So I'm going to start with an all play. And this, I want just a brief answer of this is how this is done and whatever. The question's from the chat. It's, is, do you report to the board and how and what are you reporting to the board? So just briefly, how do you report? Do you address the board directly? Do you address a subcommittee of the board? And, uh, you know, what kind of things do you report up? And Shauna, we'll start with you. Yeah, I've only gone to our main board once, but routinely go to subcommittee of the board, really focusing on level of maturity, level of risk reduction, and any escalations of support that we might need at the highest level. Fantastic. Vic, how about you? I report to a subcommittee of the board called the audit committee on a monthly basis. And we have a one-pager dashboard that we created recently for their consumption. 
It has three main sections. One, like Shauna said, it has program maturity. The second is strategic risks. These are long-term risks impacting the organization in the long-term. And the third is operational risk where there has been identified failure of people, process, technologies, or external events. So these are the three categories that we report to the committee on a monthly basis. And if you want more details on that, Vic wrote an article. He put it out on LinkedIn. Cool. Great article. Appreciate it. Eric, how about you? Quarterly to the Audit and Compliance Committee, with subcommittee of the board, and ERM metrics and program maturity. All right, this one I'm going to throw out to the field. How does operating in the cloud affect your security strategy? Who wants to grab that one? I'll go first there. Significantly, it requires different skills, processes, and tooling. It's a lot more prone to errors due to lack of knowledge and inherent decentralized architecture. So that's why I said significantly. Yeah, so, so there's a significant impact. It's very different than operating just locally in your environment. Absolutely. Let's see. Do you think, let's see. I'm curious about the leading methods you have implemented for third-party risk management. Shauna, I'm going to come to you since you mentioned this. You know, what are some of the approaches that we are taking for third-party risk management? I think I would say the most common across the industry, right? We're doing our best to assess risk of partnering with organizations. We're doing our best to mitigate that risk through language and contracts, making sure that we're being able to hold those partners accountable. Um, and where I think, and kind of as Eric talked about resiliency, where we probably as an industry need to pay more attention to is how are we paying attention to the resiliency aspect of that partner failing us, for example, they have a major incident, they have an issue, uh, what is the plan? So just high level, but build, balancing all of that and kind of time management, the organization usually wants to move quickly. These things take time. So finding the right balance for all of those things, I think is really what we're struggling with right now. Yeah. And by the way, all three of these people are professionals, so they're not going to answer specifically and say, this is exactly what we're doing. They're going to say things like, this is what we're seeing in the industry. And this is what we see. I mean, because essentially we've been taught not to tell people what our specific approaches are. I'm curious, the third-party risk management is a pretty big topic. So I'd love to hear from either. Sure. Um, I'll jump in. So I think this is one of those cases where nobody is satisfied with how we're doing it. The HDOs, the hospitals aren't satisfied. The vendors aren't satisfied. It's point in time. It's transactional. The current, even with platforms that are out there to collect all this information and do it in a more streamlined way, maybe you can get from 30 days to 15 days of execution on a one assessment. And we're talking about thousands of vendors that we have. So it doesn't scale. And the way that we have approached third-party risk is also a bit of a professional, what's the right way to say this? There's a professional aptitude, well, let me sort of change, change the way I'm going to say this. The value of the third-party risk program is being determined by how well you're good at assessing the risk in a particular transaction. And that doesn't work in an ecosystem mindset. Not to suggest, of course, you have to find the risks and the issues. So when you think about third-party risk from our current state, data, of course, is the one that we always go to. They have our data, so we've got to secure the data. 
But you got to think about it from a conduit perspective. Can the third party connect into us and cause us damage and harm? And how much damage and harm can it happen? And you also have to look at it from a mission criticality and functionality. I mean, some vendors that you might not even ever consider to throw into that group, like laundry services or PE delivery services, are vital to the delivery of care. And they all run off of digital systems too. So first, start with those three mindsets. And then we need to change this as a profession. We need to move into more of a a term that I'm kind of toying with, a third party, a sin for third party risk management. So if we could build rules that we care about, a vendor fails to deliver two-factor authentication or fails to deliver on a, an incident response or something along those lines, and we have a whole party, a whole group of people continually assessing that same vendor, I don't need to do that assessment again if Sean has already done it or if Vic has already done it. What I care about are very specific rules, very specific interactions that I have with that third party. And so when that pops, let me know so I can take a response and do something with it. Otherwise, we just can't keep up. I mean, I Intermountain, we have a lot of people that are focused on this. And it's you cannot keep up with, con with conducting all these assessments year over year and actually getting to continual coverage based on a manual process, even with platforms. So we gotta, we've got to do this continually. Well, that gets to the next question, which is, do you think the security in incident and event management workflows are still proactive enough and fast enough, given the current speed of adversaries? And essentially, the other part would be the number of attack vectors we're really trying to protect. Do the current systems and workflows, are they real-time enough at this point? I'll throw that out to the field. These are great questions. They're just, they're not easy questions. Is anything easy in cybersecurity, Bill? I'm not sure that it is. I'll just share my personal opinion. I don't think it's fast enough. I mean, I think just evidenced by many of the incidents that our health, that our industry has faced, I would venture to guess that many of them probably did have a security incident event monitoring. But the reality is it's hard to stay on top of all of the rules. It's hard to avoid alert fatigue for the people who are watching it. Like Vic said, right, we need the people still to have eyes on that. And I think as we continue to create more complex environments, that's going to be harder to stay on top of and easier to get behind. So I think there's work there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Alex's Lemonade Sand was started by my daughter, Alex, in her front yard. By the time she was four, she knew there was more that could be done. And she told us she was going to have a lemonade stand and she wanted to give the money to her doctor so they could help kids like her. It was cute, right? She's going to cure cancer with a lemonade stand. Like only a four-year-old would think that. But from day one, it just exceeded anything we could have imagined because people responded so generously to her. We are working to give back and are excited to partner with Alex's Lemonade Stand this year. Having a child with cancer is one of the most painful and difficult situations a family can face. At Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, they understand the personal side of the diagnosis, the resources needed, and the impact that funded research can have for better treatments and more cures. You can get more information about them at alexslemonade.org. We are asking you to join us. You can hit our website. There's a banner at the top and it says Alex's Lemonade Stand there. You can click on that and give money directly to the Lemonade Stand itself. Now, back to the show. So 
What is the one thing you wish you had done differently that is advice you could offer to somebody who's in this CISO role, maybe new to the CISO role? This is going to be probably an all play. And Vic, I'll start with you. What's, as you look over your career in this role, what do you wish you had, I don't know, maybe done differently or just approached a little differently? Yeah, I probably had a very linear path to cybersecurity, but in general, what I recommend people looking for a career in cybersecurity is that there is no linear path of seeing people from formal, different formal backgrounds, technical as well as non-technical make their ways into cyber. So I want to encourage everybody to pursue it. If they have the interest, they can acquire the skills. The other advice I usually give people is that you should not think of CISO as the ultimate role in cybersecurity. It's not meant for everybody, even though it's, it is at the, like the highest point of like leadership cybersecurity, but it's not meant for everybody. I've seen excellent security engineers, incident responders, forensics experts who are world-renowned. So if that is your niche and interest within cyber and not management and leadership, pursue that because we need more of that than CISOs. And, but if you're specifically looking to pursue a career in CISO, to becoming a CISO or are you are a new CISO, I usually break it down into three things. One is having a functional knowledge like operations, governance, risk and compliance, engineering operations or architecture. Second is a business acumen, whatever industry you are in, learn the business, what, how the business operate, how does hospital work, how does the organization work. And the third is just general management, budget management, people management. So those are the three areas I recommend people to kind of brush upon within CISO, but don't look at CISO as the ultimate career choice if that's not for you. Yeah. Eric, how about you? What's something you wish you had known or done differently in your career? So uh, first of all, I think there are kind of two buckets of CISOs that are out there. There's the enterprise CISO for a large corporate organization or a corporate organization, it doesn't have to be large, for a corporate organization that is a serving as a relationship, a, a strategist, and a, a business leader. And then there's the CISO who is highly technical, generally in more startup roles, serving in many capacities. Their hands are, their sleeves are rolled up, they're in there, pounding out new code, and also providing awesome insight into where the company's got to go. Those, depending on the company that you're with and the organization that you're with, you might be amazing in one and not effective in the other. As an example, I would be terrible in a startup company because I am not that guy. <laughs> But so the, the advice that I would give you for corporate CISO, enterprise CISO is uh, don't assume when you take the role that being factually correct means that you're actually right. Because you can be right. You can be, you can have all the facts behind you. You can have all the data that shows your decision is the right decision, but you fail to realize that the role is actually a negotiating role and a business role. And so you have to, if you're working with a partner inside your organization, you're trying to drive a strategy forward, you've got to you've got to meet them on their terms as far as how that's going to be done. Now, there are certain things that, are, of course, should be bright line. You shouldn't cross the line. But a lot of what we do is not. And so you have to be able to figure out how do you find, how do you ultimately get to that outcome that you're factually correct about while bringing that person with you or them bringing you along to, to get there? Wow, questions keep coming in. Shauna, do, do you want to add to that? The only thing I think I'd add, I like 
both of those, what I would add and wish I what I wish I had done differently early on in my CISO career is have been more intentional about the trust I built early on. I think having trust both with the business and with your internal like IT type partners, they're critical to whatever type of CISO you are or whatever you're trying to achieve. And without that trust and those relationships. Being able to pursue and come to alignment, as Eric mentioned, is going to be more challenging. I would have focused on that early on. All right. I'm going to try to speed us up going through some of these questions. Some of these I've never even thought about. Are you looking into leveraging a more secure network than Wi-Fi to decrease connection vulnerabilities? Is that on your radar? It's whoever wants to answer that one. It's not. For me, based on what the threats are that we're facing, are the threats that we're facing are geopolitical, nation state, APT. It's not local people sitting necessarily in the parking lot trying to break in for a local. And Wi-Fi connections and such like that are more, those types of attacks are more localized attacks. And that's not where our launch is getting added to us. It's elsewhere. And so network security, of course, and segmentation and micro-segmentation and those kinds of mindsets are effective at stopping the spread from lateral movement when an attacker gets in the environment and then they're moving east-west and trying to get around, those are really effective tools at limiting it. But wireless itself, I, yeah, not on the top of the list. Let's see, what are you looking to change in your security portfolio this year? Is there any area that's sort of risen? I mean, ransomware was so huge for so long and obviously we still need to protect against it. Is there something that's sort of on your radar that's rising right now that you think we, we're probably gonna need some tools around these different areas as we move forward? And you can speak in general terms, not specific terms, that would be fine. I would say it's something that I think Bill, you and Eric touched upon earlier, it's resiliency. We're trying to make sure that we identify our crown jewels and make sure that we have downtime procedures for all of them that are documented and we can operate without the application for a predictable amount of time because we, the length of outages due to ransomware have been in not weeks, but months. And we all saw that during the Kronos outage being without like one to two months for without being able to process payroll could cause like significant damages to an organization. So resilience is something that, that has kind of risen up given ransomware and other things that can go wrong. Shauna, how about you? Is there something you're looking at right now that you're like, hey, we might need to add some something to our portfolio? I think for me, I would only add to that being prepared for artificial intelligence. I think there's a lot of interest in the healthcare industry to understand how it can help our healthcare workers be more effective and efficient. So how do we enable that securely? I think there's a lot of opinions about it and I certainly have my own mixed opinions, but recognizing that's heading my way is something that I'm thinking about coming up. Let me throw one at you. I was talking to a CIO today and he was asking me if I heard of health systems turning off access to chat GPT. And I said, I really haven't. I said, why do you ask the question? He goes, because there's an organization next to us that has turned off access and they're not in healthcare, but they're in some other industry. And he goes, they're essentially the people were using it and putting like patentable or their patents essentially on uh, to chat GPT saying, oh, I wonder if it can help me with X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, that's like our intellectual property. You can't do that. Well, 
Couldn't we have that same thing happen in healthcare? I mean, couldn't we just be putting PHI right out there? Is that something you even consider, like blocking access to a tool like that? Eric, I'll come to you. Scary. What's scary about it is, do we really know how those models are working? You read the terms of use and things on like open API or sorry, open AI, and you hear what they say, but you know that the models that the inputs that you're putting into ChatGPT in, in particular are being used to turn back around statements because you can talk with it and it remembers what you've talked about. And so and of course, there's got to be value in, in millions of people submitting questions and retraining the model based on that. So it is, it is a bit of a Pandora's box. It has been opened. And for sure, conversations have been happening in healthcare about PHI going into those kinds of organizations. What are the right contracts, the BAAs, the data leakage, the control you know, that you can have around that? How do you actually leverage it? in a way that can be helpful in a healthcare space. It is bleeding edge right now. And so you gotta be careful is the easiest way I would say there. <laughs> and I'm sure we could talk about this for a while and I don't wanna get bogged down on it, but it, it is a great example of a hundred million people, like it felt like a hundred million people between October and December signed on to start using this thing. It's like, oh my gosh, how did this, like, where did this come from? And how did it get so big so quickly? But that's the kind of things as a CISO you're dealing with. It's like, oh, we've got a new attack vector. Like, it's just, it's just really interesting. Let's go back to when will something like pass keys make it to EHR vendors? I don't know. Anybody want to take this one? I'll take that actually. When I was looking at the, I think it's probably the, my favorite question of the day. I think very rarely there's an opportunity for a security professional to deliver something that is both secure and convenient. When does that happen? We usually put security and convenience on opposite ends of a scale, but things like passkey, or in other words, I will generalize a little bit with 502 standards. If we can offer our patients the ability to log in more securely and more easily, by more easily, I mean without a password, we can prevent medical fraud, we can improve access to care, we can increase adoption of my charts. But the biggest roadblock or the uphill battle organizations would face in that is, and we're going through that journey right now, is decoupling identity and access management from your EMRs into standalone systems. Because right now EMRs, besides handling all the clinical workflows, they also handle patient authentication and usernames and passwords. In order to leverage something like this and have a flexible architecture rather than a monolithic IAM, identity and access management architecture, you need to decouple the two, but the benefits are, they long, they hugely outweigh the effort. Are the EHR vendors amenable? to decoupling them? No. <laughs> but that model makes sense to me. On the EM, it depends on the EMR you're using. <laughs> right, right, right. I think I know which one, Victor. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's, Thanks for saying that, Eric. You may yeah. have to. <laughs> I mean, what you just said makes perfect sense to me. And, I, and then I thought, wow, could we actually do that? And there's still some conversations to have before we, we can really get to that point. Let me, next question, given the recent NIST guidelines that say, first you need to inventory your PHI, 
what say you on that guidance? <laughs> I, I love how they phrase that question. What say you on that guidance? Are we inventorying all of our PHI? Do we know where all of our PHI is? I, I mean, let's just talk as an industry. I think we would all agree we don't know where all of our PHI is. But the guidance that for it's so I, in every asset that we own, <laughs> yeah, that's where um, it is. I mean, but is there a push to inventory all the PHI to like find it first? So here's, this is where I was going at the beginning of this, I'm just kind of briefly touching on it. The idea that we have crown jewel secrets and troves of databases and repositories of things in locked corners and closets that we throw all of our controls around and control like traffic cops, the data going in and out, and it's got to pass through a toll gate before it can leave. That is not how healthcare works. It is an ecosystem. It is connected. It is interfaced. It is flowing. Uh, understanding your, of course, your key assets, how, where your assets are, your endpoints, your servers, your applications is important for being able to secure all of that. But the data mapping construct, in my opinion, is like I made a joke about it, but it's true. I mean, that literally, we are a profession where 80% of our workforce must have access to PHI in order to do their job. This is not Coke's secret formula, where only two have it. And you apply a very structured sort of dogmatic approach to finding where it all lives. So the discovery of PHI can be useful for data protection regimes, data loss pre prevention regimes. In order to do that right, you've got to have fully automated systems that understands how to classify, contextualize it, and then apply rules around it. And those things can be pretty expensive when you do that at scale. So I think in, in general, the advice I give is you got to look at the whole program. You got to look at the whole construct of what you're, of what you're covering and what are the threats you're worried about. From a data mapping perspective, what does that get you to from a threat perspective? Is it data leakage? Is it things moving out to a partner that it shouldn't be moving out to? Is it an individual being able to accidentally disclose information that they shouldn't be able to disclose. When you look at it under that way, then you look at, well, how do you put the controls and roadblocks in place for the action that would cause the problem to happen in the first place? I think the first part of that answer is really intriguing to me in that like, I could give you a map that showed, if I could give you a map that showed you, here's where all your PHI is, you would look at me and say, that's great. That's where it's at right now. A second later, it's gonna be different. Yeah, but during the day, yeah. <laughs> it's going to move up here, then it's going to move down here, then it's going to move yeah. over here. And it, it looks more like that traffic map that you see. It's like, there's the PHI, it's going from here to here, and now it's going here to here, and it's just moving at all times. Knowing where it originates and stores is important, but also knowing how it flows through the organization, also incredibly important. Absolutely. And I'll, if I can just add to that, Bill and Eric, and I agree with everything that it's a very dynamic space and you have to assume that it exists everywhere. So you got to look at it data at rest and the traffic model, which is data in motion. But one thing I would strongly recommend everybody to look at is exact data match. There are a lot of data loss prevention tools that offer that, meaning the false positives are literally not there as opposed to regular expressions where you say, oh, the nine digits make up a social, but they could also be a credit card and what have you. So investing in exact data match can significantly increase the fidelity of your capability to identify PHI, whether at rest or in motion. All right, all play.
And Shauna, since you didn't answer the last question, you're going to go first on this one. What is your strategy for ensuring an adequate cyber budget? Uh, I go back to what I mentioned in one of my lessons learned, building trust. I think having the trust of my executive team that when I request budget, it's because I actually need the budget and I've done my due diligence to know that I am going to be responsible with those funds. I'm going to appropriately mitigate risk with those funds and that it's the right thing for the organization. And that's taken time to do, to build, but it's led me to a really good place where I usually don't have those challenges anymore. Vic, how about you? Any specific strategies for securing the adequate budget? Yeah, I think this is the most toughest question I'm glad you didn't ask me first, but <laughs> it's difficult. I think I think the better the security professionals become at com determining true risk, communicating it, and then showing changes in risk posture with either an investment in tool or changes in external threat landscape can help with the budget, but it's, it is a struggle. I, I don't have a clear advice that will help people get the budget they need. There's no magic secret. Eric, do you have a magic secret way to get all the budget that's needed for cybersecurity? So start measuring your cyber program as an investment to revenue, not as an investment to IT, and figure out the percentage associated to that. Then marry that up with where maturity for now is okay, although I think cyber maturity is also a, a thing that ultimately needs to change and get into effectiveness. So if you tie your investment to maturity, one would assume the better investment, the better maturity should occur. Don't assume that hypothesis is actually accurate, though. You can spend money and not actually achieve value and just waste it. But you know, once you get to a level, a steady state, or if you're in a growth period of investment, determine a band, an upper range and a lower range, and work with your CFO. And if you're at a state where you feel like that investment can wiggle within a 5 to 10% of that upper and lower range, and then that allows you to time to flex and to squeeze and to grow during financial pressures and financial times, it gives your CFO and your executives a range to work with so that they understand what underinvestment looks like. And they also understand what overinvestment can look like. Well, do you have industry benchmarks? I mean, do you like... You would ask that question. <laughs> very Coming very soon. The landscape analysis that we're doing right now in this joint partnership with the Health Sector Coordinating Council's Cyber Working Group, this month we'll be, hopefully knock on wood, be releasing some analysis that shows exactly what at least what 60 hospital systems who have participated in this are looking like from an investment range. So we've done, we've box, box and whisker graphed this and showing what the lower, the lowest 1% to the top 100th percentile looks like. And as long as you, as long as you account for all your cyber costs, and that's not just your cyber budget that's in your portfolio, because you might not own operationally all of the elements of cybersecurity, right. but as long as you normalize to that, you'll be able to show where you are in that threshold and that might help you. Yeah. I assume all of you have a slide that shows that the scripts lost 210 to $250 million that every now and then you pull out to say, look, this is what happens or what could potentially happen if we have this kind of an event. And you can obviously scale that to your organization and say, this is what it means. 
but you can't play that card all the time, can you? I mean, that like you, yeah. you, you can maybe throw it out to the board and say, you may not have known it's this much money, but you're not doing that every time you do, hey, I need to buy a new tool. Remember, 210 to 250 million. Yeah. This is where I say our profession, the enterprise CISO side of the profession, you need to be a business leader. And that means you need to have financial acumen. And you need to be able to put a performa together, in my opinion, and show what the costs look like, what, what you're going to scale to and what those costs look like per, pursuant to that scale, and then how you fit within a range, just like any other executive would be expected to do in healthcare. In talking All right. about range, over the period, like in general, I've seen 9 to 15% of IT as being that range for cyber. And again, it depends what's included or not, but just like a high level, nine being the least mature organization percentage of IT and 15 being a healthy percentage. That's what I've seen generally used again, a lot of validation that needs to happen there, but just to give out a reference. All right, I'm gonna to try to get through six questions in six minutes. Here we go. What level of priority and investment is being made to address things related to IoT and medical devices? Who would like to take that with a one minute answer? Mid middle class, upper middle class level priority. Yeah, because there's so many of them and they're related to patient care. So, and it's, is it the exact way that we're getting beat right now? That's up for question. There's other ways that we're getting beat, but important. <clears throat> uh, Shauna, what's the number one, I'm just gonna start calling on you to keep the time. Shauna, what's the number one threat keeping you up at night as technology world changes constantly? patient safety. I mean, at the end of the day, like we're, we are a health system and how do I, as a CISO, let our organization continue to keep patients safe? Yeah, absolutely. Vic, how is AI changing the, I'm going to change the question. It's, they said, how is AI changing the patient experience? I'm going to ask you, how is AI changing the cybersecurity, the protection of patient data? I don't think it's being helpful. At this point, it's mostly another vector of compromise, and we have no tools that are designed to have a secure AI system. So are you using it internally to start? Look, I mean, one of the problems we used to have is way too many dashboards and alerts, and we just didn't have the resources. Is AI starting to step in there and weed those out a little bit for us? No. Not yet. Okay. Let's see, how important are historical downtime statistics in choosing a cloud hyperscaler for patient or clinician-facing applications? And Eric, you get to go next. Past performance is always important to look at. Is it always going to be a predictor of future? Not necessarily. So more important is understanding how critical that app is to your business operations. And if it is highly critical, plan for it to be out. Yeah, and it's interesting. You put stuff in the cloud and you're like, well, look, Amazon is pretty reliable. And But what you realize is enterprises that go into Amazon build out resiliency within the Amazon cloud. Like they expect this region or this whatever to fail and they're going to fail over to another region. So even if you're moving stuff to the cloud, you still have to do all that work of saying, okay, what if that fails and build it out? And we've talked about that a bunch. Shauna, healthcare, considering security solutions like DLP, CISB, SWG for their clinics and remote telehealth workers. And I'll be honest, I don't know what all three of those acronyms are. 
Are you considering them for clinics and remote telehealth workers? Of course. Of course. I think you have to make sure that you're covering both on-prem and off-prem with your your security controls. And that's really just understanding the architecture and where your risks are. Yeah. Wherever they are, you have to protect it. 100%. Collaboration with data protection and storage teams to ensure airtight environment. This is the problem with these forms. They don't form a question. But I assume you guys, Vic, I'm going to, I'll go to you. I assume you have a great relationship with the, the internal IT team with regard to standing up the right protocols and, and security practices. Yeah. And I think it's, I think what they're asking is how do you balance that relationship? And I think Shauna touched upon it earlier, which I like very much is like building trust with the teams making sure they're educated on the cyber risks. And what we normally do is we have a risk acceptance framework where we separate, we make sure that the business that is benefiting from an investment is also accepting the risk. So if they want to go hundred miles an hour, they accept that risk and it's not the CI or the CISO accepting the risk. And Eric, this will be, I think this will be the last question. How does API security stack up in the list of priorities in 2023? So, this is part of your cloud journey and part of your digital journey. And as you're, it, depending on where you are in that spectrum, if you're going pushing heavily into cloud infrastructure as code, all of that, then incredibly important because it is part of your life cycle of protection and review and configuration. So if you're not there yet, then it might not be, it might not stack up as, as high in your list of things to do. Automation, are you guys, is automation a big priority right now for security officers? I see heads shaking, yes. So, so we just actually hired our first data scientist and trying to play out a really interesting space of how can we leverage data science to sort of solve for some of our challenges. Very new, so nothing to showcase yet, but something we're certainly interested in. And definitely the last question, are you seeing SaaS solutions that will identify the risk and then dynamically use a SE to resolve these incidents. Sorry, I should have my glasses on, but are you seeing SaaS solutions that are popping up in that manner? Yeah, I think SaaS solutions such as security at the edge or cloud security access brokers are gonna become increasingly important and a must have in your toolkit to handle security with SaaS providers. Fantastic. Hey, I want to thank the three of you for being on the hot seat and uh, taking as many questions as you did. Really appreciate it. Shauna, Vic, and Eric, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. I love the chance to have these conversations. I think if I were a CIO today, I would have every team member listen to a show like this one. I believe it's conference level value every week. If you want to support This Week Health, tell someone about our channels. That would really benefit us. We have a mission of getting our content into as many hands as possible. And if you're listening to it, hopefully you find value. And if you could tell somebody else about it, it helps us to achieve our mission. We have two channels. We have the conference channel, which you're listening to, and This Week Health Newsroom. Check them out today. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. We want to thank our keynote partners, CDW, Rubrik, Sectra, and Trellix, who invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.